Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Calcio podcast. This is a podcast all about Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. I'm flying solo for today, but I have a jam-packed episode for you. In part one, I'll review the win over Atalanta on Sunday. In part two, I'll review our Primavera match against Torino, which was also on Sunday. And in part three, I'll review our last two Femenile matches. So let's begin with the Atalanta match. As you know, Napoli won 3-1 on goals from Lorenzo Insigne, Matteo Politano, and Elif Elmas. Martin Darun scored the lone goal for Atalanta. This was a massive win for us. I wouldn't say it was against the odds necessarily, because I think we were slight favorites. But history certainly wasn't on our side. It was our first win at the GWIS since 2018, and it was a jam-packed stadium. This was the first round of Serie A with stadiums back at 100% capacity. Fortunately, there was a very large contingent of traveling Napoli supporters who our players celebrated with after the match. Dries Mertens even tossed his shirt to the Ultras, to which they responded with a chant dedicated to Chiro. It was also a win that was earned without three key players in Amir Rachmani, Giovanni Di Lorenzo, and Victor Osimen. Heading into this match, our win percentage this season with Victor in the squad was around 70% compared to 50% without him in the squad. It was such a big win that we earned a small space on the cover of the Gazzetta dello Sport, of course. In large text above us was the headline, Now It's Up to Milan. And above that was half a page dedicated to Inter with the headline, yes, Inter is there referring to the Scudetto race. On the bright side, our space was slightly larger than the headlines about cycling and MotoGP. 
Of course, had we lost, it probably would have been plastered all over the cover page as we saw on Saturday when Gazzetta published all the negative articles they can think of about Napoli, including the COVID accusations for the Juve match, the investigation about Plus Valenza or capital gains, which is a reference to the Osman transaction. They completely fabricated a story about Osman's delayed return from Nigeria and the consequent unhappiness in the locker room. The reality is the club allowed him to stay in Nigeria for an extra day or two because he was suspended for this match anyways, and they revisited the Alemao case from the 89-90 campaign, which is when we won our second Scudetto. For those of you who don't know, that season we tied Atalanta nil-nil, but there was an incident involving Atalanta fans and our Brazilian midfielder Alemao. Alemao went to retrieve the ball for a corner kick, and a fan tossed a coin which struck him on the head. He ended up leaving the match, and after the match, Napoli were awarded a 3-0 win at the table, and then years later, then-president Corrado Ferlaino revealed that the club advised Alemao to stay down, and Napoli went on to win that Scudetto by two points over Milan. Now, I get that the Alemao story was from a match against our opponents for this round, but to publish that story next to all the other negative stories that I mentioned, I have no doubt that Gazzetta was suggesting that Napoli are cheating their way towards the Scudetto. Credit to Luciano Spalletti though, he called out a Gazzetta journalist in his pre-match conference about these articles, and I swear this guy just never misses. And yet, with all of that against us, we still managed to walk away with all three points. I'll talk all about that in this review, but first, let's review the starting lineups. Giampiero Gasperini made three changes compared to our predicted 11. He lined up in a 3-4-1-2 with Juan Musso in goal. Jose Luis Palomino, Brad Jim City, and youngster Giorgio Scalvini lined up in the back three. We had Medi Demorel starting, but for some reason he was not in the squad. Davide Zapacosta played at left wing back and Hans Hattabor played at right wing back. We had Joachim Meili on the right. Martin Darun and Remo Freuler played in the center of the midfield. We had Tun Kuntminer starting over Freuler in the middle, but instead he started over Matteo Pessina as the trequartista. Finally, Luis Muriel and Ruslan Malinowski started together up top. For Napoli, Luciano Spalletti made four changes to the squad that he fielded against Udinese and two changes to our predicted 11. He lined up in a 4-2-3-1 with David Ospina in goal. As expected, Juan Jesus started for the suspended Amir Rachmani at center-left, with Koulibaly moving over to center-right. Mario Rui started at left-back, and Alessandro Zanoli started at right-back. I was expecting Kevin Malqui to start there. Andre Frank Zamboangisa and Stanislav Lobotka started in the double pivot. I was expecting Fabian Ruiz to play alongside them in a 4-3-3, but Spalletti used Zielinski over Fabian in the 4-2-3-1 instead. When I tweeted our projected 11s, I did ask whether we should line up in a 4-3-3 with Fabian Ruiz or a 4-2-3-1 with Zielinski, so I picked the wrong one, but I wasn't terribly surprised with this starting 11. The front three was as expected as well. Lorenzo Insigne started on the left wing, Matteo Politano started on the right wing, and Dries Merten started over the suspended Victor Osiman at striker. So those were the starting lineups. Next, let's get to the match, and I want to start with just some general thoughts on the match, and then I'll get to some individual player assessments. The way this match started, I was very, very concerned, as I'm sure most Napoli fans were. We really struggled against Atalanta's press. We committed mistake after mistake in the opening 10 minutes or so, and as a result, it seemed like we couldn't string together two passes. 
Koulibaly had a dreadful start to the match. Two minutes into the match, he had that slip where he conceded possession to Muriel, and then he fouled Malinovsky in a dangerous area. Fortunately, nothing came of that free kick. Then a few minutes later, he slipped again on a ball by Zapacosta over the top for Miners. Fortunately, Hatabor slipped on the cross too, and even the commentator in the English world feed half-jokingly questioned whether they might have overwatered that side of the pitch because players from both teams were losing their footing. Now, I just want to have a quick word on Koulibaly before I move on. Besides those two slips, there was also his involvement in the Atalanta goal, which I'll get to in a little bit. In our preview, I asked Victor from SSC Napoli, Nigeria, if he was concerned about Koulibaly playing slightly out of position, and both of us agreed that it was nothing to worry about. But having watched this match, I wonder if perhaps those early struggles were indeed the result of Koulibaly playing slightly on the right side. Now, I do think he settled down after that first 10 minutes or so, and he played really well in the second half, which is why if you look at the Pagella in the various papers, they all gave him relatively high scores. And I thought Koulibaly's performance was really a reflection of the performance of the entire team, because it wasn't only Koulibaly who made mistakes early on. We saw Jesus play Ospina into a corner, and Ospina had no choice but to kick the ball out to touch. Ospina himself had a couple of heavy touches and forced himself into playing some poor passes under pressure. We saw Ngisa and Insigne conceding possession in our own half, so lots of players struggled early and made mistakes, but everyone seemed to settle down well after the first goal. I thought our friend Gaetano Solazzo summed up the first half nicely on Twitter. He said, One of the most atypical Napoli halves in a very long time. Fair to say we were a step slow and very much outplayed, but somehow we are up 2-0. Usually it's the other way around. We play well, but find ourselves in an unfavorable scoreline. Now, I don't think you need to be a professional analyst to conclude that the difference in this match was that one team took their chances and the other did not. According to the official match report, Atalanta had 19 shot attempts, but only three of them hit the target. Obviously, one was the goal and the other two required very good saves by David Ospina. The first was on Malinovsky in the 8th minute, and then the second was on Jeremy Boga in the 76th minute. By the way, if you're wondering why Ospina freaked out after that second save and earned himself a yellow card, I'm fairly certain it's because Scalvini went down holding his head. The rules state that when a player suffers a head injury, the match official is supposed to immediately stop play for obvious reasons. Instead, DiBello waited for Boga to take the shot, and then he called for the medical staff. But Atalanta had other chances, they just could not hit the target. Freuler had one about midway through the first half, but his snapshot missed the far post. Then Boga had an excellent chance in the second half after Freuler's ball found its way through the area, but it was on Boga's weaker left foot and he launched it well over the bar. Meanwhile, Napoli had only 6 shot attempts, but 5 of them hit the target. Besides the 3 goals, we had 2 shots hit the target. One was by Mario Rui around the half hour mark, where he hit the ball accurately towards the top corner but the shot didn't have enough power to beat Musso. The other was by Koulibaly of all people in stoppage time during the first half where he dispossessed Palomino in the Atalanta area, but Koulibaly shot with his left caught too much of the goal. That means the only shot we had on target in the second half was the goal by Elmas. The XG for this match was Atalanta 1.4, Napoli 1.5, which suggests that if this match was replayed numerous times, more often than not, it would have ended in a draw. I thought both sides felt the loss of their main marksman. With the way Atalanta pressed, we really missed Victor Osiman. With Victor, when we're pressed, we can just launch the ball forward and let him chase it and hold up the play. Unfortunately, Mertens does not have the pace or strength to do that. 
Meanwhile, Atalanta missed Duvan Zapata and have missed him for quite some time. With Zapata in the squad, Atalanta have a record of 10 wins, 4 draws, and 3 losses this season. Without him, they have a record of 4 wins, 5 draws, and 4 losses. Now that's including the Cagliari match where he returned to play for 14 minutes and aggravated his muscle injury. To put it another way, Atalanta averaged 2 points per match with Zapata in the squad and only 1.3 points per match without him. In the last 11 games without Zapata, Atalanta have scored only 14 goals and 10 of those goals were scored between their 6-2 win over Udinese and their 4-0 win over Sampdoria. So goal scoring has definitely been a problem for them and I think that showed in this match as well. Let's move on to some individual performances and I want to start with Alessandro Zanoli who had some big shoes to fill and I'd say he filled them quite well. Spalletti confirmed in his pre-match conference on Saturday that Zanoli would be the starter which I thought was a great show of confidence. He could have stayed quiet on the subject and left Atalanta to guess whether it would be Zanoli or Malqui. Perhaps Spalletti figured that regardless of who started between the two, Atalanta would attack that side of the park so he might as well show some confidence in his young right back. In fact, both managers showed confidence in their young right backs with Gasparini starting Scalvini. He also had a very good performance. That was timely given all the talk after Italy's failure to qualify for the World Cup for a second consecutive tournament, namely that Italy is not developing young talent at the same rate as their counterparts in England, Spain, Germany, and France. But having watched this match, I think Spalletti's confidence was genuine. I thought Zanoli played a very mature match. He looked very comfortable out there. I didn't see an ounce of nerves from him. Zanoli gave an interview to Kiss Kiss in the build-up to the match where he said he tries to copy everything Di Lorenzo does. I think we saw that as well, particularly in the way he was driving forward and joining the attack. Of course, the most obvious example was the run he made in the lead-up to the penalty kick. He has this explosive pace and because of his size, he can cover a lot of ground in very little time. He made a similar run in the second half where he dribbled past Miners and Jim City and then took on Darun but was unfortunate to concede a throw. So he did that well but he also did a little bit of everything else. He won balls in the air, he blocked shots and he played his role in the buildup. With that performance there can be no doubt that Zanoli will continue to play for Di Lorenzo and if he continues to play that way then Kevin Malqui's days at Napoli could well be limited. The next player I want to talk about is Lorenzo Insigne. I've been very critical of him this season, but I have to say I was really impressed with his play in this match. He took his penalty with confidence. He's actually been very good from the spot of late. You might recall that he struggled a little bit early in the season, both for Napoli and the Azzurri. That was when he was using the Jorginho-style run-up. He's had a lot of success since he switched back to smashing the ball into the corner. That was Insigne's 8th goal of the season, 7 of which have come from the penalty spot. Shout out to Dries Mertens as well for winning the penalty, that was a veteran play he made there. He knew that he just had to get a touch before Musso got there. To be perfectly honest, I'm not a huge fan of those types of penalties. If Musso doesn't make contact with Mertens, that ball is probably rolling harmlessly out to touch. But for all the officiating inconsistencies in the league, this call is one that is made consistently. As a goalkeeper, you have to be sure that you're going to get to the ball first if you come off your line like that, otherwise you're taking a huge risk. So even though Mertens didn't have the greatest match, he did make an important contribution, 
with his newborn son Chiro Romeo watching. Merton's wife Kat posted a picture of baby Chiro in his bassinet with his father on the TV screen, which was lovely to see. Back to Insigne, he also assisted on the second goal. Both the pass by Insigne and the finish by Politano were absolutely stunning. I'll talk about Lobotka in a moment, but he made a fantastic run before earning the free kick that led to that goal. Though Insigne had a goal and an assist, I was actually most impressed with his contributions in defense, particularly in the first half. When we couldn't seem to string together a few passes, he was constantly tracking back to help defend. That was a part of his game that he improved under Gattuso, that work rate which he continues to show now under Spalletti. Insigne played 69 minutes and then he was replaced by Chugi Lozano. With that change, Eli Felmas, who had replaced Politano 10 minutes prior, moved over to the left wing and Lozano played on the right wing. I thought Lorenzo Amoruso made a great point on the English broadcast, which was that both of these players would be problematic for Atalanta because of their pace. Atalanta pressed for the entire match, so they were tired. There was also extra space on the field with Atalanta pushing for the equalizer, which made Elmas and Lozano that much more dangerous. And sure enough, they combined to score the third goal. We talked about Koulibaly's poor plays in this match. He made a fantastic pass to Lozano to start that break. And then he charged forward to join the attack, which just shows how badly Koulibaly wanted to win this match and also perhaps how he wanted to atone for his errors. I thought Lozano did really well to control the pass. In fact, he might have had his three best touches all season during this brief appearance. And then Elmas very calmly took his goal. I want to touch on two more players quickly since I've been rambling on for a while already. Both Stanislav Lobotka and Mario Rui have been really important players for us over the last little while and they were huge again in this match. People are now saying that Lobotka has become even more important to Spalletti than Davi Pizzaro was for him years ago at Roma. You can see that he's playing with a ton of confidence. There was a play in the second half where it seemed like Atalanta were going to force a turnover deep in our end and he just turned into space and we played out of it. He didn't have as high of a pass accuracy in this match as he normally does, which was probably because of that Atalanta press, but he has become really important in that midfield. As I said, Mario Rui was massive for us as well. He seemed to get to every loose ball that was in the area. He also made some important tackles in the area, and according to FB Ref, Mario Rui had more progressive passes than any other player on Napoli. He even made a delicate chip pass to Insignia in the second half that was really nice as well. Last season, I joked about how Koulibaly plays three out of the four defensive positions. He plays left back, center back, and center back. He seemed to cover Mario Rui quite a bit. Koulibaly was on the other side for this one, and though I thought Jesus played well too, Mario Rui did not need any help. If anything, he was covering for his teammates, so that was great to see. Alright, the last thing I want to talk about is unfortunately the racist chance towards Koulibaly at the end of the match. If you didn't see or hear this, it happened while Koulibaly was walking off the pitch. Now, unlike the cases with Fiorentina and Hellas Verona, this time it really was just one or two individuals who embarrassed their own fans. I'm not going to repeat the comments I've made previously about this, which is sad in itself, namely that I've had to comment on this so often. What I will say is that I was somewhat impressed by the response from Bergamo. Their mayor, Giorgio Gori, tweeted, What a shame the racist insults by some Atalanta fans today at the stadium. The few who shouted do not represent us. The club issued a statement as well. Now, 
I think they had good intentions, but it was very legal in nature, and as a result, it didn't come off as very sympathetic. It read, Atalanta BC communicates that any behavior not in line with the principles of civilization and education, which have always been pursued by this club, will be strongly opposed. We do not want, and we underline it, to give visibility to subjects that have nothing to do with our environment, and therefore, without clamor or generalization, we will act in the competent offices so that the image of the club and the city of Bergamo are protected. That statement makes it sound like all they are concerned about is their reputation and that a few bad apples don't ruin it. I think Martin Darun was far more sympathetic with his tweet on Monday. He said, It still saddens me that there's still racism in football. On behalf of all the true Atalanta fans and the people of Bergamo, I'd like to apologize to Koulibaly. The Senegal Football Federation issued a statement of their own. It read, Faithful to their sad habits, some Bergamo Atalanta fans showed once again their human paucity, uttering despicable and racist insults aimed at our captain and leader Kaladu Koulibaly. These mindless idiots must not have a seat in the stadium. That echoes my previous comments on the matter. Atalanta can distance themselves from the people as much as they want, but they have a responsibility to identify who those individuals are and ban them from attending matches. Otherwise, they are only empowering these people to continue spewing this hatred. That will do for part 1. In part 2, we'll review our latest Primavera match. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Welcome to part 2 of the Forza Napoli podcast. Next, let's review our Primavera match against Torino on Sunday. This match was just before the Atalanta game, so it was a nice early morning appetizer for those of us in North America. Torino came into this match sitting 9th in the table, tied with Milan on 36 points, and they did come into the match in somewhat good form. They were unbeaten in their previous 6 matches, but 4 of those matches were draws. They're a bit of a streaky team. Before that stretch, they were winless in their previous 6, with 4 losses and 2 draws. And before that, they had only lost one of their previous nine matches, five of which were wins. Torino were missing a couple of players for this match, both of whom were strikers. Lado Akalaya was suspended after being sent off in Torino's previous match against Spal, and Luigi Cacavo was ruled out due to injury. Meanwhile, the Azzurini came into this match in 13th place, four points clear of Lecce and Hellas Verona in the relegation playout positions. However, Hellas do still have a game in hand. We were winless in our previous four, but our last three matches were all draws. After a 1-0 loss to Atalanta, we drew Empoli 2-2, then we drew Pescara 2-2, before we drew Sassuolo 1-1. Nicolo Frustalupi was also without a couple of players for this match. In fact, he was missing three regular starters. His starting goalkeeper, Huberti Dasek, and his top goalscorer, Giuseppe Ambrosino, were both called up to the senior team while Daniel Hisai served the second game of his two-match ban. Matteo Marquisano continued to recover from a calf injury as well, 
but Frustalupi recovered Enrico Giannini and Gennaro Iaccarino from injury. It was really encouraging to see Iaccarino back in the squad. He tore his ACL in the very first match of the season against Bologna. So with that, let's get to the starting lineups. Torino lined up in a 4-3-3 with Alberto Milan in goal. Andre Anton and Ange Guessen started at centre-back. Samala Angori returned from the senior team, who he was with on Saturday, to start at left-back with the Primavera on Sunday. Vittorio Pagani started at right-back. Giorgio Savini started as the regista with Matthew Garbett to his left and Tommaso Di Marco to his right. Aaron Chamalichella started on the left wing. Thibaut Bayatin started on the right wing. And Alessio Rosa played at striker. For Napoli, Frustalupi made only two changes to the squad that he fielded against Sassuolo. One of those changes was in goal. Valerio Bofelli started over Huberti Dasiak. Davide Costanzo, Pasquale Pontillo, and Benedetto Barba played as the back three in Frustalupi's 3-4-2-1. Francesco De Marco started at left wing back, and Giuseppe D'Agostino started at right wing back. Coli Sacco and Francesco Gioielli played in the center of the midfield. Antonio Vergara and Alessandro Spavone played as the two trequartisti, and Antonio Cioffi started at striker. So those were the starting lineups. Next, let's get to the match. I thought the first half was fairly even. Both sides had a single clear-cut opportunity to score and then the occasional half chance. Torino's best chance came only six minutes into the match, and Gori played a long ball forward. D'Agostino won the header, but the ball went straight to Rosa. He played Bayatin through on the left wing. D'Agostino tried to play the offside, but DeMarco didn't push up on the opposite side of the pitch, and that allowed Bayatin to get clear into the area, but Bofelli was quick off his line to make the save. Not that D'Agostino was at fault there, but he did seem to struggle a little bit playing out of position. Normally, he plays as a trequartista, but with Marquisano and Giannini both hurt recently, he's played at right wing back. He was nearly exposed again about five minutes later. Pagani played a deep cross to the second post. Chamalikella rose up to win the header over D'Agostino, but the ball finished just over the top corner of the goal. Those were Torino's two key chances in the match. They had a couple of half chances as well. In the 27th minute, Savini played Bayatin into the left side of the area, but Costanzo tracked back and made a really impressive block. Then just past the half-hour mark, Garbet picked up the ball in the Torino half, burst through the midfield, and carried the ball the length of the pitch. He went for goal and got decent power on the shot, but it hit the outside of the goal. Meanwhile, Napoli played well but didn't create a whole lot of chances. In the 16th minute, Pontillo launched the ball forward to Trophy, who did really well to take the ball down in the area. He laid it off to Spavone, but Torino did well to block the shooting lanes. Spavone tried another pass, but he missed D'Agostino, and in the end, nothing came of it. Then in the 28th minute, we saw a lovely interchange between D'Agostino, Trophy, and Vergara. It only amounted to a corner kick, but the quick 1-2 passes was a good sign. Without Ambrosino in the squad, I was wondering where the goals would come from, and that exchange did give me a little bit of hope. One thing I noticed in the first half was that we seemed to be avoiding DeMarco on the left wing. DeMarco is a backup, so perhaps his teammates don't trust him as much as someone like Giannini, but they need to start using him, otherwise we become predictable and easy to defend. We didn't get our first real chance until a few minutes before the break. The chance came from a well-worked set piece from a corner kick, Vergara played a low ball towards the near post where Trophy made the run. He got a slight touch on the ball and it fell to Sacco in front of the goal. Unfortunately, his shot took a deflection and hit the upright and stayed out. That was the final chance for either side in the first half, which ended nil-nil. 
The second half started similarly to the first with Torino creating a chance and Bofelli making a big save. Angori crossed the ball into the area from the left wing. Pagani got a touch on the ball before Savini smashed a volley on target from the edge of the 6 yard box but somehow Bofelli made the save. Torino seemed to be the more positive side in the second half and they got yet another chance in the 66th minute. Substitute Vidas Guinidis played a ball into space for Di Marco to run onto. Vergara had no choice but to commit the professional foul from about 30 yards from goal. Angori went directly for goal. His shot curled and dipped but just missed the top corner. Aside from a speculative bicycle kick from D'Agostino in the 80th minute and a weak effort by Trophy from outside the area in the 85th minute, neither side created that many chances. That's why I thought this game was over when Torino went ahead immediately after that shot by Trophy. Two Torino substitutes combined on this goal. Stenio Zanetti picked up the ball at midfield and drove towards the Napoli area. He ran straight past Gioielli and Barba before sliding the ball between Pontillo and Costanzo in the area. With Giannini tracking back, Giannidis needed only one touch to tuck the ball underneath Bofelli to put Torino ahead. Frustalupi responded immediately with three substitutions. He replaced Gioielli with Davide Acampa, Pontillo with Antonio Pesce, and D'Agostino with Giovanni Mercurio. In the first minute of stoppage time, Pesce chased down Vergara's long ball to the corner flag, and he did well to play the ball off of another substitute, Stefano Reali, to win the corner kick. Vergara's first attempt was headed out by Janidis for another corner. Janidis won the header on the second attempt as well, but this time he had the ball straight back to Vergara. Vergara put the ball right back into the area and this time he found a teammate. Sacco got behind the Torino back line and touched the ball into the bottom corner at the far post. That made the score 1-1 with only a few minutes left to play and that is how this match ended. This was our fourth consecutive draw and the second consecutive match we've come from behind to equalize. So while it would be nice to get some wins instead of draws, those points are absolutely crucial. I'm no mathematician, but four draws is equivalent to one win, one draw, and two losses, which again, isn't so bad for a team fighting for survival. Unfortunately, the other results from the round did not serve us well at all. Somehow Bologna upset top of the table Roma, while Genoa beat Sampdoria, so both of them leapfrogged us in the table. Empoli drew Fiorentina 1-1 to remain one point ahead of us as well, so we dropped down to 14th in the table, which is the last safe position. To make matters worse, Hellas Verona beat Pescara, so they are only two points behind us, and they have that game in hand. That game in hand is against Juventus, so we're now in the uncomfortable position of relying on Juve for help. If Hellas Verona win that match, we would actually drop into the relegation playout zone. The Azzurini will be back in action on Saturday to take on Lecce, who is the other team currently in that playout zone, so this is another critical match. We need to win just to ensure they don't get any closer to us in the table. As it stands, we are 5 points clear of them. For me, this is a must-win match because we have an extremely difficult stretch of games coming, after Lecce, we play against the top four teams in the table in quick succession. We have second place Inter, then third place Cagliari, then first place Roma, and then fourth place Fiorentina. Then we close the season with matches against direct rivals in Genoa, Spal, and Hellas Verona, so it is going to be a pretty wild end to the season. That will do for part two. In part three, we'll review our latest Femenile matches. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. 
Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome to part three of the Fortsanopoli podcast. We'll close the pod with a review of our last two Femenile matches, starting with our round 18 match against Sampdoria. Sampdoria came into this match sitting comfortably in sixth in the table. Sampdoria have been a fairly predictable club this season. They tend to beat the lower table teams and lose to the top of the table teams, which didn't bode well for us being near the bottom of the table. Meanwhile, we were coming off our first loss in our previous four matches. We lost 2-0 to Juventus after a draw to Milan and wins over Hellas Verona and Fiorentina. Giulia Domenichetti and Roberto Castorina had a relatively full squad for this match. They were only missing Depichatsi Nicolao and Evi Popadinova, who both continued to recover from their respective knee injuries. So with that, let's get to the starting lineups. Sampdoria lined up in a 4-3-1-2 with Amanda Tampieri in goal. Elena Pisani and Giorgia Spinelli started at centre-back. Michela Giordano played at left-back and Sabar Seguir played at right-back. Federica Rizza started in the centre of the midfield with Bianca Falico to her left and Dominica Chonch to her right. Yorelli Rincon started as the trequartista and ex-Napoli player Ana Martinez. And Stefania Terenzi played as the dual strikers. For Napoli, Domenichetti and Castorina made three changes to the squad that they fielded against Milan. They lined up in a 4-4-2 diamond formation with Raquel Baldi in goal. Maria Wona and Lana Golob started at centre-back. Sedia Bramson and Kaya Ertzen dropped from left and right wing-back respectively to play at left and right back. I think that was largely because Hedden Corrado was not entirely fit so she started on the bench. Sara Tui started as the regista with Claudia Mauri to her left and Emma Severini to her right. Martina Tognolo started as the trequartista and Ariana Acuti and Romina Pina started as the dual strikers. So those were the starting lineups, next let's get to the match. Unfortunately, this was a pretty one-sided affair right from the opening minute. Only 20 seconds into the match, Martinez played a ball over the top to Terenzi. She put a decent effort on target, but it was from a tight angle and Baldi made the save. Baldi was called into action a few minutes later, Martinez was involved once again, cutting in from the left before squaring to Rincon. She hit the ball first time from about 25 yards out, but Baldi stopped that as well. Two minutes after that, Rincon played the ball to Chonch at the edge of the area, but her shot finished just wide of the mark. Sampdoria continued to push forward and in the ninth minute they got a much deserved goal. Sampdoria were awarded a free kick after Mauri pulled Rincon down on the right side of the midfield. Rincon took the free kick herself and swung it into the area. The ball fell to Terenzi who volleyed the shot on target. Baldi made the save but Spinelli was waiting on the doorstep to tap in the rebound. Sampdoria nearly doubled their lead only 3 minutes later. Chonch crossed the ball from the left side near the byline. Golob headed the ball clear but only so far as the top of the box. Once again Martinez was in the right place at the right time. She laid it off to Rincon who hit the volley first time from the edge of the area. Thankfully Baldi made an incredible save on the shot that was destined for the bottom corner. Baldi was called into action again in the 26th minute on a Samp corner kick. Rincon played a deep cross to the second post where Terenzi won the header. 
The ball was heading into the top corner, but again Baldi made the save. Unfortunately for Sampdoria, Rincon was forced to leave the match with an injury about 5 minutes before the break. As you can tell, she was very involved in the Sampdoria attack. Meanwhile, Napoli didn't test Tampieri at all. All we could muster in the attack was a shot from distance by Ertzin that finished well off target. So Sampdoria went into the break up a goal to nil. Napoli made two changes at the break. We replaced Akuti with Solaheims and Severini with Emma Eriko. The intent was to give the attack a spark and that seemed to work. Sola entered the match with a lot of energy and she got her first chance only two minutes after the restart. Tognolo drew a foul by Conch at midfield. Ertzen played a long free kick into the area where Sola won the header. She directed her header toward the bottom corner but Tempieri made the save. Sampdoria responded with a chance of their own, also from a free kick. Golob fouled Terenzi in the left corner of the field. Seguir played an in-swinging cross into the area and once again Spinelli was there. She headed the ball towards the bottom corner but once again Baldi made the save. Needing to score, Domenichetti replaced Pina with Eleonora Goldoni and Tognolo with Paola Di Marino. We finally got to see Goldoni under these coaches and she seemed to make an immediate impact. Shortly after entering the match, Goldoni won a free kick in a dangerous area about 25 yards from goal. Tui went directly for goal but her shot finished just over the bar. Even if she hit the target though, Tempieri was well positioned to make the save. It took about 65 minutes for Napoli's attack to start firing and then we had a strong close to the match. In the 68th minute, Napoli broke through Tui who played a ball out wide to Abramson. She played an incisive pass to Sole who touched it back to Tui and then Tui went back to Abramson and she crossed to the second post. Ertzen rose up and won the header but she just missed the bottom corner. A few minutes later, Goldoni won another free kick, this time at midfield, which Napoli played quickly to Sole. She got behind the Sampdoria back line but she pushed the ball a little bit too far ahead of herself. She managed to get the shot off but it was from a tight angle and Tempieri made the save. Even though Napoli seemed to have all the momentum, Sampdoria nearly doubled their lead. In the 71st minute, Tui supposedly fouled Tempieri at the edge of the area. Personally, I don't think there was a foul there at all. I think Tempieri made a meal of it and at the same time, if there was a foul then it was probably in the area so in that sense we might have gotten away with one. Substitute Veronica Batellani took the free kick and very narrowly missed the top corner. Napoli had a couple of chances in the final quarter of the match. In the 76th minute, Ertzen cut the ball back from the right side to Tui at the edge of the area. She hit the ball first time and hit the target, but her shot was straight at the keeper. Finally, with only a few minutes remaining, Tui played a volley cross into the area. Sole won the header, but Abramson was just a second too late at the back post, and the ball rolled harmlessly wide of the mark. That was our final chance of the match which finished 1-0 in favor of Sampdoria. Fortunately, both of the teams immediately above us in the table lost their matches as well. Fiorentina lost 2-0 to Milan and Pomigliano were shocked by bottom of the table Hellas Verona. Even Empoli only managed a draw against relegation-bound Lazio, so Empoli only added a point between us. That meant that, with four matches remaining, we were in the final relegation position, three points back of Fiorentina, 4 points back of Pomigliano and 5 points back of Empoli. That brings us to our match against Lazio on Saturday. Coming into this match, Lazio were 2nd from the bottom of the table so this was a must win. Unfortunately, we ran into a Lazio side who seemed to find their form. They were unbeaten in their previous 3 matches, they drew Fiorentina, 
Then they beat Sassuolo, and then they drew Empoli. That was all after four consecutive losses. Now, I just covered Napoli's latest matches, so we can go straight to the starting lineups for this one. Lazio lined up in a 4-3-3 with Stephanie Orstrom in goal. Ludovica Falloni and Beatrix Fordo started at centre-back. Chiara Villucci started at left-back and Francesca Pitaccio started at right-back. Giulia Ferrandi played in the centre of the midfield with Antonietta Castiello to her left and Virginia Di Giamarino to her right. Noemi Vizentin played on the left wing. Joanne Friedland played on the right wing. And Rachel Cuscieri played at striker. For Napoli, Domenichetti and Castorina made a number of changes to the squad they fielded against Sampdoria. They went back to the three women backline with Di Marino and Garnier starting alongside Golob. That relegated Marie Awona to the bench. Abramson and Ertzen both shifted back up to wing back. Saratui started in the center of the midfield with Emma Eriko starting over Claudia Mauri to her left and Severini to her right. That meant Tognolo moved back to the bench as well. Finally, Goldoni finally got a start under Domenichetti and Castorina. She started over Pina, while Solaheim started over Ariana Acuti. So those were the starting lineups. Next, let's get to the match. Just like the Sampdoria match, we got off to a slow start. Vizentin, Ferrandi, and Di Giamarino were causing all kinds of problems. Only 5 minutes into the match, Vizentin dispossessed Tui in the Napoli area, but Baldi was there to intercept her cross. Then in the 9th minute, Ferrandi played a long ball over the top to Vizentin. She drew a foul on Di Marino at the edge of the area. Di Marino was also cautioned on the play, which I thought was a little bit harsh. Fortunately, nothing came of the free kick. A few minutes later, Di Giamarino played a long ball over the top to Vizentin. It seemed like she was clear on goal, but Golub raced back and made a really important tackle to force a corner kick. Finally, in the 15th minute, Di Giamarino struck the ball really well from about 35 yards out, but Baldi did well to push the ball over the bar. Meanwhile, all we could muster in the attack was a shot by Goldoni from a tight angle that Orstrom pushed away with ease. Things settled down for a little after that, but at the half hour mark, Lazio took the lead. Friedland played a perfectly weighted through ball into the left side of the area. Vizentin ran onto the ball and took on Garnier. She attacked towards the byline then cut back in and was caught late by Garnier, earning herself a penalty kick. Ferranti stepped up and sent Baldi the wrong way to put Lazio ahead 1-0. About 5 minutes later, Severini was very fortunate to not be sent off. First, she shoved Di Giamarino into Tui, but the official must not have seen it because he awarded Napoli the free kick. I guess Pitaccio didn't hear the whistle and played on. Severini didn't like that and put her studs into the back of Pitaccio's leg. You simply cannot do that, but for some reason, the official let it go. In fact, he did not even caution Severini on the play. Napoli seemed to wake up after that and created a number of chances in the final five minutes of the half. First, Ertzen drew a foul by Villucci on the right side. She took the free kick herself and crossed the ball into the area. Both Goldoni and Sole went up for the header and as a result, instead of putting the ball on target, they headed back into the danger area. The ball fell for Garnier, but her shot was blocked by Pitaccio. Two minutes later, Goldoni won a free kick on the opposite side of the field. This time, Severini played an in-swinging cross into the area. Sole won the header, but she was leaning back so the ball went straight up into the air. Ortstrom made the catch, but she appeared to injure her calf on the play. Now, despite being visibly in pain, she decided to stay in the match. Due to the injury, there were four minutes of stoppage time, and during that time, Napoli created three more chances. 
In the second minute of stoppage time, Garnier played a long ball forward to Sole. She headed back to Goldoni who controlled with her chest and hit the volley first time, but her shot was always slicing wide of the goal. In the third minute of stoppage time, Ertzen played an outswinging corner and once again Sole's header went straight into the air. This time Di Marino won the second ball and headed towards the top corner, but a clearly injured Orstrom made the save again. Finally, in the fourth minute of stoppage time, Severini played the ball forward to Sole, who directed the ball towards the top of the Lazio area. Goldoni beat Falloni to the ball and had only the keeper to beat. She tried a bit of an outside in shot, but somehow Orstrom stopped that shot as well. That was the final chance of the half, which ended 1-0 in favor of Lazio. Orstrom was in so much pain that she had to be carried off the pitch, so she was replaced by Lazio's backup keeper, Emma Guida, at the start of the second half. Now, I don't know if our players were discouraged or perhaps out of ideas, but after a strong finish to the first half, we came out looking very flat in the second half. We didn't create any clear-cut chances until about the hour mark. Garnier played the ball into the area after Lazio cleared our corner kick. Golob tracked the ball down by the byline and cut it back to Goldoni. Castillo tried to win the ball back, but Goldoni maintained possession and fired on target. Unfortunately, she caught too much of the goal and Guida made the save. After that, neither side created a whole lot until around stoppage time. Our best chance was in the final minute of regulation time after Tui won a header on the Lazio goal kick. Sola held the ball up, laid it off to Goldoni, and she played a perfectly weighted through ball to Pina in the area. She had only Guida to beat, but she tried to use the outside of her right boot and didn't get much on it. I think Pina had enough time to use the inside of her foot and curl the shot towards the far corner, so that was really disappointing. A minute later, we were fortunate to not fall behind by two. Di Marino played a pass back, not realizing that Vizentin was waiting for it. Fortunately, Baldi was quick off her line to block the shot. We continued to push forward, desperate to find an equalizer, and we had one final chance in the third minute of stoppage time. Pina crossed the ball into the area from the left wing near the byline. Sole won the header, but directed the ball straight at Guida for the easy save. As a result, this match finished in an extremely disappointing 1-0 loss. If we are relegated, this is a match that we will definitely look back to as one of the reasons why. Fortunately, all of our direct rivals lost as well. Empoli lost to Milan 3-0, Pomigliano lost to Sassuolo 3-0, and Fiorentina lost to Inter 2-0. On the flip side, had we won this match, we would have pulled ourselves out of the relegation zone. Instead, we're still in that third and final relegation position with only three matches left to play. The Feminile are off now for an international break, but they return at the end of April to play against Sassuolo, Empoli, and Pomigliano. That will do for part three. That will also do for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you need to get a hold of me, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5, and you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forza Napoli Pod. I'll be back in a few days to preview our match on Sunday against Fiorentina, but until then, I'm Joe Fischetti, Forza Napoli sempre!
Social Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchases, over prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.